0: kinds of interpretations of who and what the end time beast will be lots of widely varying opinions and we might think that well it's it's so obvious it's going to be in europe it's going to be led by germany but to many it, it is not obvious why do we believe what we believe you know one of the basic understandings of prophecy in the church has to do with the identity of the beast which will dominate much of the world for a short time in the end time and it's a fundamental understanding that has been a part of the the work part of the warning message for decades and really does separate the true Church of God from much of the rest of the mainstream Christian world. The question is, can we really know the identity of the coming end-time beast power? Why do we believe what we believe? Are they just ideas that have come up by an advertising man? That he just dreamed them up somehow? Or is it something much bigger? Let's talk about that today and and we'll address three questions. Will the beast be Germanic? Will the beast be Assyrian? And why does it even matter? The title, if you'd like a title, is Germany Assyria Assyria and the end-time beast. Germany, Assyria, and the end-time beast. If you haven't read or studied the booklet, The Beast of Revelation, Myth, Metaphor, or Soon-Coming Reality, uh, we have lots of copies. Make sure you you take time to read that. Obviously, there's so much more detail in there than one sermon can cover. Fantastic booklet. Uh, written by Mr. John O'Gwyn years ago. Let's talk about the the end time beast of Revelation. Let's talk about this first question: Is the end time beast Germanic? And and why do we, if we believe it is, why do we believe it is? Let's start in Revelation chapter 13. Uh, go to Revelation chapter 13, and we'll jump right into this question. Revelation 13 is describing a beast, in verse 1, coming out of the sea. Now before we get into there, we, we start with an understanding that this beast represents the Roman Empire in, in, in the broad uh, in the broad scope of things, <clears throat> when John was writing, he was really writing as a continuation of what Daniel wrote in Daniel chapter two and Daniel chapter seven. Daniel describing four ruling empires, as we understand, that were 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 in Daniel chapter seven described as as for uh, beasts, and the final one was the Roman Empire. And this is not a, a mystery. Uh, many commentaries will bring this out. It's very obvious that the final beast of Daniel 7 was the Roman Empire. Generally understood. Well, John now in chapter 13 of Revelation is seeing all of those empires culminating in the Roman Empire, that had absorbed the empires that had gone before. So now he sees an image of a beast which had many different characteristics that all came from different beasts there in Daniel 7. We're not not going into Daniel 7 right now, but that's just a little bit of the background, right? So, we read in chapter 13 and verse 1, "...then I stood on the sand of the sea." And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns and on his horns ten crowns and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. There you have three different animals that in Daniel 7 were representing different empires. Babylonian, Persian, Greek. But now we're... Were had been absorbed by the, the Roman Empire. Now Paul, uh, John was seeing that it really was just one, in one sense, was just one continuous system of man's inability to govern himself. Man's predatory and ravenous kingdoms that God saw as beasts. That's how he described them. The beast I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. So we can see who's motivating this beast, who is influencing it. And I saw, verse 3, one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. We're going to talk about that for a little while here. The mortal wound and the deadly wound healed. What is that talking about? If you ask the great repository of knowledge, Google, you will find all sorts of answers about what this means and different things that different people believe. Um, One is that This beast receiving the the mortal wound was one of the emperor's dying, perhaps Nero. And when he was healed, that meant that Nero mysteriously came to life again and was found or hidden in a different part of the world. And uh, he was rumored to be alive and well. There is a much more straightforward explanation of what happened. And by the way, as well, many, many commentators, when they, they look at the, the deadly wound, they, they acknowledge that there was a point where the Roman Empire ended. And then the healing is, is just sort of metaphorical and, and any, any, uh, uh, any, any point where the Roman Empire manifested itself later is just metaphorical. But there is a more straightforward explanation when we look at the benefit of history. When we look past, when we look to the past, and we think, what is this talking about? And what happened? You know, oftentimes prophecy is best understood with the hindsight of history, isn't it? I mean, we can look forward with, with some broad scopes and broad strokes, but with the, for the details... We don't always know all the details until it happens. And then it's very clear, looking back. Well, with the benefit of history, what was the mortal wound and what was the healing of the Roman Empire? Well, the Roman Empire officially fell in 476 A.D. Uh, We know that. But after that we see about 1,500 years of a dream of putting it back together that has persisted even to this day. Back in 1999, when the euro, the monetary unit, was being developed, that was a dramatic step. Now, for those of you who weren't around at that time, uh, those of you who don't remember it, um, I can tell you, and others who, of us who were here, that was a huge shock to the whole world. When a group of nations in Europe set aside their sovereignty to have their own monetary system in order to embark on this project from which there was no turning back. It was historic stuff. It was big. Here's an article from April 27, 1998, from a Business Week special report. It reads this, The Euro, in one fell swoop, it will create the world's second largest economic zone. The potential benefits are limitless, and so are the risks. It says, In a bold step toward eventual political union, Europe is launching a monetary revolution. On May 2nd, 11 countries, Germany, France, Spain, Italy, Ireland, the Netherlands, Austria, Belgium, Finland, Portugal, Luxembourg, will set the terms under which they'll trade their national money for an untested currency, the euro. They're sacrificing their most sovereign national power the right to issue their money. Francis de Klerk, 42, CEO of Keyware Technologies, Brussels, says this, "...the euro will open new markets as never before." Ever since the Roman Empire, we haven't had a chance to build this kind of strength. It is a source of renewal. Has the dream of reuniting the Roman Empire ever died? No. 1957, at the signing of the Treaty of Rome, establishing the European Economic community. Henry Spock, the the former Secretary General of NATO, later remarked about those meetings. He said, We felt like Romans on that day. We were consciously recreating the Roman Empire once more. It was a big deal. Big deal. And has been for centuries. So going back to when Rome fell in 476, at that time the Roman Empire was already divided into an eastern half and a western half. The western half fell. The eastern half at that time did not fall from Constantinople. So what was the healing of the mortal wound? Well, let's talk a little bit about what happened. Over the next 80 years or so after 476, Rome was ruled by several Germanic tribes, but there was a dream to reunite the Roman Empire and drive out those tribes. Justinian, the emperor from Constantinople of the eastern leg, accomplished it in 554 A.D. But there was a catch. He was only able to retake Rome with the aid of a political ally, and that was the Bishop of Rome. And from that time onward, the Bishop of Rome was a powerful and essential ally in this dream and this attempt to rule Europe in a unified way. So, looking back in history, it actually fits perfectly when we look at Revelation 13 as the mortal wound... And then the healing being this effort to put it back together again, but with the religious system. Let's turn over to Revelation 17. Revelation 17. So that's exactly what has happened since then. In the the next 1,500 years, this alliance between church and state has been the reality in Europe to one degree or another. And we find the rest of the story in Revelation 17. Revelation 17 in verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication. And the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication, so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Revelation 13, we saw the Roman Empire receiving the mortal wound and being revived. John sees a new vision in Revelation 17. And this is a beast like before with... Heads and horns, but now this beast is being ridden by a woman. So what is he seeing? He's seeing the repeated attempts to reunite the Roman Empire in this alliance with a church. What does the woman represent in prophecy? A church. But, of course, in this case, it's not a chaste and virtuous woman. It's not the woman who is preparing herself to marry Christ. It's rather an immoral woman, a false church. And this false church is in league with these revivals of the Roman Empire as they come. Revelation 17 and verse nine, notice, uh, let's start in verse seven, but the angel said to me, "Why do you marvel? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman. And of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns, the beast that you saw was and is not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Uh, An empire that died, that received a mortal wound, and yet continues to move on, continues to be revived somehow. Here is the mind which has wisdom, verse 9. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. So five have fallen. It's interesting when we look at the seven heads and seven mountains on which the woman sits. Rome is known as the city of seven hills. Could that be a passing reference to where this is talking about? Again, the the original question is, is, where is the beast? Where is it going to rear its head from? And is it going to be Germanic? We're talking about these heads that would be revived that would come up periodically. Let's talk about some of the prominent leaders that rose over the next thousand years or so in this this revivals of the Roman Empire. Justinian, of course, 554, he's the first. Charlemagne in 800 was crowned as the Roman emperor. Let me read a little bit from history.com website. Charlemagne, also known as Carl and Charles the Great, was a medieval emperor who ruled much of Western Europe from 768 to 814. In 771, Charlemagne became king of the Franks, a Germanic tribe in present-day Belgium, France, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and Western Germany. You know, it's easy to think Charlemagne was French, right? Doesn't that name sound French? He was king of the Franks. Well, well, I mean, aren't the Franks French? No, actually not. They were a Germanic tribe. His name was Carl, or Charles the Great. And the he was actually king of the Franks, Germanic. He embarked on a mission to unite all Germanic peoples into one kingdom and convert his subjects to Christianity. In 800, Pope Leo III crowned Charlemagne Emperor of the Romans. Who's next? Otto the Great, 962. This is from historytoday.com. Nostalgia for the vanished Roman Empire in the West lasted for centuries. After Romulus Augustus, the final emperor, was deposed in 476. Otto the Great has been recognized by historians as, in effect, the first of the Holy Roman Emperors and the most powerful European ruler of his time. From the early 1500s, it was the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation. That was the official name of the Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire of the German nation. The name was not finally dropped until 1806, a thousand years after Charlemagne. Charles V in 1530. He also was Germanic. He was, uh, he, he was descended from the Habsburg dynasty through his father. He was crowned by the Pope, another Germanic king. Napoleon came along in 1804. Um, we consider him also to be a head of this empire. He crowned himself, ironically. Uh, interesting way to become the emperor of uh, the the new Roman Empire. Uh, But we might say, well, Napoleon was French. How could that be? Actually, he was not. He was Corsican from the island of Corsica, and his parents were Italian. And his name, he only adopted the French spelling of his name later in life. So what's interesting is after the revival under Justinian, in most cases, we have found the Roman Empire revivals have had a special German characteristic to them. They've they've had a German aspect to them. This is what Dr. Hermann Hay uh, wrote years ago back in 1962. He said, The German Reich long endured as the oldest political institution in Europe, Older than the government of France or England by centuries, the German people called their Reich the Holy Roman Empire. It bore rule over Europe for a thousand years. This Holy Roman Empire of the German people was officially designated by the church in the Middle Ages as the kingdom of God on earth. Its citizens, the Germans, felt themselves true Romans and bearers of the Christian Reich or kingdom. They were therefore the chosen people of the Christian era, entrusted with a world mission to be the protectors of Christianity. The German leaders and philosophers have never forgotten this notion of the Middle Ages that the German in place of the Jew has a special mission from God. Now why is this important? Well, brethren, if we understand that the revivals have had this German element... By and large. And then, of course, we see Hitler and Mussolini come along as another revival. Would it not stand to reason that the next, the last, would also be led by a German? Seven Resurrections of the Holy Roman Empire. If it happened in history, why wouldn't it happen that way one more time? It's interesting when you look at verse 12. He says, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they'll give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords king of kings and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful the end of this empire happens when christ returns and when he destroys it and frankly when he allows his chosen and faithful to be a part of rebuilding the world that's that's the end that's the that's the point where this Changes and, and the good news that 's coming, but my point thus far is when we when we talk of the end time beast, is it going to be German? Well, if it follows the pattern of history absolutely, absolutely. Revelation chapter seventeen shows that the revivals of the Roman Empire have been mostly So let's ask another question. Ask another question. Number two, is the beast Assyrian? Is the beast, in time, going to be Assyrian? Well, that's a good question because it relates to, are the Germans Assyrians? And again, if you look to the great repository of knowledge on all things, Google, you will find all kinds of interesting things. When I googled that question, are the Germans the ancient Assyrians? I came up with a uh, discussion on a social network called Reddit. And here it is. Here's the question, Reddit entry. I've heard many people say that Germans are partially descended from ancient Assyrians in videos and some websites. Is this true? Here's the answer. Absolutely not. I think it's ridiculous that this idea is still being entertained. The Germanic people migrated from Scandinavia and did not come from ancient Assyrians. There's no historical, lingual, archaeological connection between ancient Assyrians and Germans. The people who made up this idea did not even know that modern-day Assyrians even existed. End quote. Okay, well, interesting answer. You know, it sort of begs the question... Well, maybe the Germans did come from northern Europe, but how did they get to northern Europe? How did they get to that area of Scandinavia? You know, the the Romans saw them coming down from northern Europe, but how did they get there? They had to get there from somewhere else. Actually, there is evidence as to who the modern Germans are and where they came from. It's not a crazy idea. In fact, it was... Well accepted only a few hundred years ago. You can read about it in all sorts of books. Uh, There's a book that was written in 1634 by a man named Richard Verstigan entitled A Restitution of Decayed Intelligence in Antiquities Concerning the Most Noble and Renowned English Nation. I love the titles that they used to give books years ago. Aren't they a whole lot more interesting and long than titles today? the author quoted ancient ancient authors such as Berosus and Tacitus to make the point there's evidence of ancestors of Germans coming to Europe from the Middle East. Thousands of years before Christ, there were Assyrian colonies in Europe, the time of the patriarchs. In 1860, William Smith, a lexicographer who in his spare time learned to learn to read uh, Greek and Latin classics in the original languages. So not a slouch on, uh, on his studies. He wrote a book, A New Classical Dictionary of Greek and Roman Biography, Mythology and Geography. He said this, there could be no doubt, this is 1860, that they, the Germans, were a branch of the great Indo-Germany race who along with the Celts migrated into Europe from the Caucasus and the countries around the Black and Caspian Seas as a, at a period long anterior to historical records. You know, just because people in our day don't believe it, doesn't mean it's not true. Just because people today don't believe the Bible, doesn't mean the Bible's not true. You know, when the Assyrian Empire crumbled, Nineveh was demolished. The people disappeared. But Greek historians like Diodorus Sicilus of the first century before Christ write of Assyrians appearing, suddenly appearing, along the shores of the Black Sea. Where did they come from? They were where they would be if they were being driven precisely out of the area uh, where they had lived before, along with the Israelites. You know, I gave this sermon some time ago in another congregation, and afterwards, one of the ladies told me she was from Germany. And as a little girl in the 1950s in Germany, she had learned that the Germans came from the Assyrians. Isn't that something? And yet there are some today who say, no, this is just a bunch of crazy stuff. You can read more about it in Dr. Winnell's article, Resurgent Germany, a Fourth Reich. It's from 2007, Tomorrow's World, and um, September-October edition. And it it outlines a whole lot more evidence about this. Mr. Rod King also explained this in a telecast years ago. I'll get back to that in a moment. But back to our point. So if Germany is Assyria, and there is evidence for that, then what does that mean in prophecy? What does that mean for the end time? What does it mean for the house of Israel? Are there any prophecies that pertain to Assyria and Israel? Let's turn over to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Again, why do we, in the work, in our message, in our warning, why do we talk about Germany so much? Is there any evidence? Absolutely there is evidence. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 11. We know this whole chapter is talking about the millennial reign of Christ. He's talking about his kingdom being set up. He's talking about the the earth being full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In verse 9. And then it says, verse 11, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set His hand again the second time to recover the remnant of His people who are left. Those who are taken captive. We're warning our people about a coming captivity. And this is looking ahead to the point after that, when they're coming back. Well, look where they come from. From Assyria and Egypt and Pathros and Cush and... Elam, and Shinar, and Hamath, and the islands of the sea. In other words, this nation and the other Israelite nations will be taken captive and and taken all over the world. But notice there is a focus of some specific places as well. Verse 15, The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. With His mighty wind, He will shake His fist over the river and strike it in the seven streams, and make men cross over dryshod. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria, as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt. Okay, well, Israel was taken captive in 721. Could that be applied to that? Well, they've never come back. They never went back to that land, did they? So clearly this is yet to happen. Isaiah chapter 27 and verse 12. You know, some, some people say that, well, the, there, there are still Assyrians who live in northern Iraq today, a small group of people. And those are the Assyrians. They're not the Germans. But again, as we look at some passages here, we're going to see how whoever the Assyrians are, they're going to be a people who conquer and overwhelm and take captive the Israelites. And in the end time, the Israelites are a world power. Would you have a tiny group of people that no one knows about somewhere in northern Iraq be the ones who would take captive the United States and other Israelite countries? No, Assyria is someone who is going to be a world power at the end. Isaiah chapter 27, verse 12. Notice, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. Clearly a picture of the future, isn't it? So it shall be in that day the great trumpet will be blown is that the last trumpet is that perhaps the the trumpet on the day of atonement we'll have to wait and see but clearly it's looking forward they will come who are about to perish in the land of assyria and they who and they who are outcasts in the land of egypt and shall worship the lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. Are we just making it up that Assyria is going to take Israel captive in the end times? Or is it right there in Scripture? Is it prophesied? And is it impossible for that to be applied to 721 uh, B.C.? Isaiah, uh, Let's go to Hosea chapter 9. Hosea chapter 9. What did Hosea... Say about Israel. Hosea prophesied some very, very interesting things for our discussion today. Hosea chapter 9 and verse 3. Uh, <clears throat> verse, verse 1. Do not rejoice, O Israel, with joy like other peoples. You've played the harlot against your God. You've made love for hire on every threshing floor. The threshing floor and the winepress shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail in her. They shall not dwell in the Lord's land, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt and shall eat unclean things in Assyria. They shall not offer wine offerings to the Lord, nor shall their sacrifices be pleasing to Him. They shall eat unclean things in Assyria. Hosea chapter 11, notice in verse uh, verse 3, Verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my sons as they called them. They went from them. Verse 3, I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms. But they did not know that I healed them. It's interesting when you read through here and you get a sense for God's love for His people. You know, so many look down on God and take shots at God for how he deals with his sinning and rebellious people. And yet look at how he describes his relationship with his people. He says, I I took them by their arms. I drew them, verse 4, with gentle cords, with bands of love. And I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. I took care of them. I reached down and guided them. Verse 7. Uh, verse 5. He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king because they refuse to repent. Verse 7. My people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt him. How many ways does that describe us today? Verse 9, I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come for with terror. He's saying there's, a, there's going to be a limit to my punishment. There's going to be a limit to my judgments. Yes, I will chastise you. Yes, I will correct you. But it will stop. There will be a point where it's over, and I will heal you. And notice, verse 10, as we read this, can there be any application except the end time? Verse 10, They shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when he roars. Then his son shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria. And I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. Well, where is west of Jerusalem? not ancient assyria this is talking about the future when we speak of israel being taken captive by assyria there are at least these at least four different specific prophecies that can only take place in the future it's not wild speculation it's not make believe it's not made up So why does it matter? Why does it matter if the beast is in Germany or headed by Germany, if the beast is Assyrian? Let's talk about what difference does it make and who cares. Does it make a difference? It does make a difference. Let's consider several reasons why. Number one, this understanding helps us understand our world. It helps us understand our world. You know, a lot of people are focused on China today, uh, uh, their rise. A lot of people are focused on Iran uh, being the the dangerous foes to watch. Uh, Some are even focused on the U.S. government being the rising beast. Did you know that one... Fellowship, Church of God Fellowship, this is the position of their leader, that the beast is not in Europe, the beast is America. The beast is the U.S. What confusion. Understanding Bible prophecy helps us understand our world, helps us understand world events, and helps us gain comfort through understanding what's coming. I'll just read Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. I know Mr. Ames has read this many, many times, but brethren, this is a fundamental point that we we must remember. Revelation 1 and verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. Verse 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear though and heed, The words of this prophecy, I'm sorry, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. There's a blessing for reading the book of Revelation. There's a blessing for understanding the book of Revelation. It was revealed. It's not supposed to be a mystery. There's encouragement. To know what's coming and know how to be prepared and how to be spared. There is a storm on the horizon, isn't there? And understanding what's happening and why it's happening enables us to take steps, to not be caught unawares. This is a huge understanding for our day. Let's let's not take the blessing of understanding for granted second reason why it's important, number two, it helps us understand our mission. Understanding who is going to be the nemesis of the modern-day house of Israel helps us understand our mission. You know, Jonah was given a mission to preach at Nineveh. Nineveh was the ancient capital of Assyria. He did not want to go to Nineveh, did he? Why not? Why didn't he want to go to Nineveh? Ever thought about that? Maybe he didn't like the Assyrians. Maybe they had a bad reputation. Maybe he was worried what would happen to him. You know, that was probably not unfounded. Maybe he had heard the prophecies of how they would overthrow Israel. And he said, why should they get any mercy? And at first he walked away, didn't he? But God had persuasive ways to encourage Jonah. Encourage is an interesting word. Uh, Encourage Jonah to go back to Nineveh. Because he had a job to do. Brethren, our mission is to warn the Israelites, we need to do our job. But it's also our job to take the message to the world including the Germans. You know, if they are a focus of these prophecies, they need to know that so they can have a chance to repent as well. Let's turn over to Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10. This is the very well-known passage where we read of God using Assyria as a rod of correction. On his people. But notice something here. In Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 5. He says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I will send him against an ungodly nation. And against the people of my wrath, I will give him charge to seize the spoil, take the prey, tread them down like the mire of the streets. He details how... Assyria is going to overthrow Israel. And that happened in 721 B.C. But again, much of prophecy is dual, so we expect an end time fulfillment of that. And it's because of Israel's sins. But notice even the context of the verse there is, Woe to Assyria. There's a warning to Assyria. Why? Read on. He says in verse 12, Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, that he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria, and the glory of his haughty looks. So Germany, Assyria, is going to be punished for his arrogance after God uses him to punish Israel. So does not Assyria need to be warned as well? Because God loves them too. It's interesting how the work in Germany has grown recently. Mr. Weston mentioned this in The World Ahead not long ago. He said, in Germany where our work is much smaller, we saw a very encouraging surge in growth recently. The website Welt von morgan.org had more than 110,000 unique visitors in 2020, a 26.3% increase over 2019 with visitors coming from 118 countries and territories. During the last 6 months, 771 individuals signed up for the Bible study course for a yearly total of 1100, that was more than a 150% increase over 2019. Do we not need to get the message to the Europeans as well, to the Germans as well, to the Assyrians as well? We have a man in Germany who's been doing phenomenal work for years, Adrian Kafer, who's, I believe has translated virtually all of the booklets by himself and just been plugging along for years. There are others who are helping translate with other projects now but uh, it's it's very exciting to see that message going out in germany and europe why else does it matter why else does it matter who the beast is whether it's going to be led by germany assyria etc number 3 it helps us to have confidence that god is leading his church It helps us to have confidence that God is leading His church. You know when the Worldwide Church of God apostatized, they changed virtually every doctrine that had been held before that, including the prophetic message to America about Germany. And again, it's interesting if you look on their website today, they believe the mortal wound of Revelation 13 was simply something historical back at that time, back during the Roman Empire. And they've thrown the understanding that we had in Worldwide Church of God away. The rest of Revelation basically just spiritualized away. It's all a metaphor. There's no end time significance. It's it's frankly blindness. Blindness. Blindness to people who knew before. Mr. Armstrong had been preaching the truth about Germany and Israel in the end times. And when big things started to happen, people took notice. I think all of you have probably heard this, but in December 7th of 1989, when Germany was reuniting, there was an article in a... um, Local paper in Hendersonville, Tennessee, with the heading, What else was Armstrong right about? This person wrote, Like a great many Americans, I've been watching the current political situation in East Germany with interest. While many have expressed surprise at the recent events and at East and West Germany, I have to admit I haven't been too surprised by these events. The reason I haven't been particularly surprised is that for years I've occasionally read the publications of a Pasadena, California-based church called the Worldwide Church of God. Its founder, the late Herbert Armstrong, who remained the active chancellor of that church until he was in his 90s, wrote a number of articles and booklets on the subject of German unification and what he called a United States of Europe. Armstrong's writings were often deemed unbelievable and ridiculous by some critics, usually the leaders of Protestant churches, and the Catholic Church. But as I watch the tide of sweeping changes that have enveloped East Germany in recent weeks, again, this is 1989. For those of you who weren't around back then, before that time, you had East Germany and you had West Germany. And anyone in East Germany trying to get into West Germany was shot. They could not cross the border. And suddenly that wall came down. And everyone was taken by surprise, but not everyone, not everyone, because Mr. Armstrong had been teaching, the church had been teaching it, had understood it. He says as I watch the tide of sweeping changes that have enveloped east germany in recent weeks I'm reminded of what now appears to be some very accurate predictions Armstrong made about the future of Europe. Armstrong predicted that the Berlin Berlin Wall would someday come down and that the two german states would once again reunite into a powerful nation. He also predicted that all the european countries would someday unite in a new and powerful United States of Europe. On top of all that, the church can- Chancellor predicted a resurrection of the Holy Roman Empire, I can't help but wonder at the fact that things are developing in East Germany the way Armstrong predicted, and I can't help but wonder what else he might turn out to be right about. Again, ironically, this was written right around the time when the leadership of that of the church at that time, was going in the opposite direction when all of these things were happening. My point is, Mr. Armstrong was right. And what he was doing was shown to be accurate. And what this church and what this work has been continuing has been shown to be accurate. Even in recent years, remember Brexit that just became official here a few weeks ago. Britain splitting with the European Union. That was no surprise. Why? Because of the prophetic understanding. Brethren, we have an understanding of prophecy, not so we can feel good about ourselves, about what we know and others don't, but rather so that we have an understanding of our times, we can understand our work, and it can even give us confidence in God's Word. Because if this is accurate, if this is true, if these things are happening, if Mr. Armstrong and the church explain these and then they happen, then what else must be in this book that is real, right? You know, when we see prophetic things take place, that's the way God works with us to help us to get our attention and say, wow, God foretold that. What else in here is there that I need to listen to? Fulfilled prophecy helps us gain confidence in God's word and confidence in God's work, that he's leading his work. Mr. Rod King made a statement in a telecast about six years ago. In 2015, before his death, the telecast is called The Lost Empire of the Assyrians. You can check it out on Tomorrow's World. Made a really interesting statement, just not a dogmatic statement, but sort of a off-the-cuff statement around the 25-minute mark. I'm gonna read it. He was talking about Germany. He said, Ger- right now, Germany is on the point of balance. They can choose to take a not-involved role in world politics, as they've done since 1945, or they can begin to flex their economy and, finally, their military muscle. And what could tip that balance? Well, it would take a crisis. The crisis, or a series of crises, could start with a sudden and dramatic loss of American power and influence a collapse of the dollar of 1929 proportions, a global flu epidemic, or a constitutional paralysis of the U.S. government. He said this in 2015. Could all conspire to cause a global shift in power, whatever it takes, we know that Germany is set to play a vital part in the future. Now, was he making a direct prediction? I don't think so. Was he saying something dogmatically? I don't think so. But isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting? And what's coming next? We've got a global flu epidemic, and we've got a constitutional paralysis in this country. And we easily could have a fall of the dollar. What comes next? You know, it's interesting. There have been all kinds of articles about Germany. Right, right now, Germany is lying low. Germany is sort of not really taking a hugely prominent role, and yet there are things happening quietly under the surface. Here's a headline, More Courage to Assume Global Power, on the GermanyForeignPolicy.com website. The Germany foreign policy establishment is entering the second year of the COVID-19 pandemic with new plans for EU global power. Whereas in particular Western powers and their allies have been overwhelmed by new waves of the pandemic at times being confronted with rapidly increasing numbers of casualties, International Politik, IP, Germany's leading foreign policy periodical, is debating the question of, quote, quote, What Europe lacks to assume global power, end quote. The demand that the Union must have more courage to assume global power has already been raised in several leading German media organs last fall. According to a poll in December, nearly half of all Germans surveyed agree that the EU can play a strong role in global policy, similar to that played by the USA and China. The survey revealed that the highest approval rating to be among the younger generation, around 70% of those age 18 to 29, consider the EU to be a future global power, whereas the opinion group is only 28% of those over 60. It's interesting. The older generation in Germany believes the union is either too weak to be a, a global leader Or perhaps they understand and have concerns about the last time Germany took a leading global position. And it left 50 or 60 million people dead. Whereas the young generation has no such reservations. It will be interesting to watch. Notice in Hosea chapter 5. Hosea chapter 5. Who is watching Germany? You know, everybody's watching China, aren't they? Everybody's watching the Middle East. Everybody's watching Russia. Who is watching Germany? Who would expect Germany to play a leading global role? Not many people right now. Who would expect Germany to lead a play a leading malevolent global role. Especially, that would be unexpected. And yet, remember in Revelation 17, it says the whole world marveled, marveled at the power of this beast. Could it be that this beast rises and takes the world by surprise? Because it comes out of nowhere maybe even maybe even to be the savior of the world, Hosea chapter five and verse thirteen it's interesting in history Hosea warned uh, God warned uh, Israel to not look to Assyria to bail them out. He warned uh, the northern half house of Israel and the southern house. Notice Hosea chapter five and verse Uh, verse, Verse 10, back up a little bit. Verse 10, the princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. I will pour out my wrath on them like water. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked by human precept. I mean, that describes us. Therefore I will be to Ephraim like a moth and to the house of Judah like rottenness. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob. Yet he cannot cure you nor heal you of your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a long, young lion to the house of Judah. I even, I will tear them and go away and I will take them away and no one shall rescue. Could it be that in some way, in our current mess, somehow we will look to Europe to help us? It happened, it happened in the past. You just wonder if it will happen that way in the future. Let's turn over to Isaiah chapter 19 and verse 22. Isaiah chapter 19 and verse 22. God doesn't hate the Germans. He doesn't hate the Israelites. He doesn't hate any people. He doesn't hate any tribe. He created everyone. And he's preparing his kingdom to be for everyone, isn't he? And he's going to start with someone. And notice, in terms of physical nations, there's a very interesting passage here about several countries in particular that he will work with as he reestablishes society in the future, in the millennium. Isaiah 19 and verse 23. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian will come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. In that day Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless. Saying, blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Does God hate the Assyrians? Absolutely not. He's going to use them to do a work. He's going to use them to help rebuild society. Perhaps. I mean, he says they're the work of my hands. And that will be a beautiful thing. You know, brethren, it it matters that we believe the Bible is the basis of history. It matters that we understand where the conflicts that God tells us about in prophecy. It matters that we understand where they come from and how they're going to pan out. Because we are seeing prophecy take place right before our eyes, aren't we? And especially over the last year, we have seen all kinds of things happen very, very quickly. As we look at these things, it matters that we understand because it enables us to be able to do our job. It enables us to understand our times. And it emboldens us to have confidence that God is leading His church. Let's thank God for the understanding He's given to us. Let's thank God the 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 understanding He's given us to understand prophecy, to understand who the nations of the world are, in particular the ones that are going to be the big players at the end, because we've got a message to preach and to get out, and that includes to the German people. Let's warn them. Let's warn our own people. God, in His wisdom, His mercy, and His plan, has a plan for everyone, and thank God for the fact that he's revealed that to us. Who are we? Who are we? And yet he's given us an opportunity to be a part of his work. So who are the Germans? Who are the Assyrians? Who is going to be the end-time beast? When we look at the Bible, it's very, very clear.